0: <clears throat> now this is recording rti international center for forensic science presents
1: just science
0: Welcome to Just Science, a podcast for justice professionals and anyone interested in learning more about forensic science, innovative technology, current research, and actionable strategies to improve the criminal justice system. In Episode 5, Just Science interviews Matt Riddell from Florida International University about their efforts to develop forensic education and training programs at FIU. The National Forensic Science Technology Center at Florida International University offers a variety of courses, consulting, and training geared toward forensic scientists. Matt Riddell and the rest of the faculty at FIU are working to develop accessible programs for law enforcement, military personnel, and now undergraduate students. Listen along as he discusses the development of digital forensic courses and his experience in the university system in this episode of Just Science. This season is funded by the National Institute of Justice's Forensic Technology Center of Excellence. Here is your host, Dr. Mike Planty.
2: Hello, and welcome to Just Science, a podcast with justice professionals and anyone interested in learning more about forensic science, innovative technology, current research, and actionable strategies to improve the criminal justice system. I'm your host, Dr. Mike Plante, with NIJ's Forensic Technology Center of Excellence, a program of the National Institute of Justice. Here to help us with our discussion today is guest Matt Ruddle. Welcome to the podcast, Matt.
1: Uh, Thanks. Nice to be here.
2: Matt is a member of the National... Forensic Science Technology Center, a program at Florida International University, FIU, specializing in digital forensic course development and delivery. He spent 15 years working for the Florida Department of Law Enforcement and the Crime Laboratory, 12 of those years in the digital forensics section. He received received his Master of Science in Digital Forensic from the University of Central Florida. While working full-time in the crime lab, During his time working at the lab, Matt also worked with over a thousand cases involving a variety of crimes investigations, including sexual assault, drug cases, fraud, money laundering. So here today, we want to talk about his effort and the university's effort to develop education and training, a program in digital forensics. Matt. Let's first talk about your experience and your pathway into this field. Did you set out 15, 20 years ago to be a digital forensic expert?
1: Uh, Absolutely not. Uh, As a matter of fact, I I got into this field kind of backwards. Um, Most people who do digital forensics, uh, they either come from a background of computers or networking or they come from local law enforcement agencies. They're the local cop who knew how to set up the printer in the office. And so they get a grant and get a bunch of money and sent to some training and said, figure it out. I actually got my bachelor's degree in chemistry and I started out working in the crime lab at Florida Department of Law Enforcement in the chemistry and toxicology sections. So I was doing drug chemistry and uh, screening blood and urine samples for drugs and alcohol and those types of things. And this was uh, sort of before all of the fentanyl and all of the different versions of opiates that are out there now. And so quite honestly, drug chemistry for me was, was kind of monotonous. It was kind of the same thing over and over again. This is marijuana, this is cocaine, this is marijuana. Ooh, it's LSD. But the, the casework was pretty much the same kind of case over and over and over again. Um, Same thing with toxicology, it was almost all DUI cases and so we were doing the same type of cases, same type of analysis over and over and over again. And so I looked around the crime lab that I worked in and FDLE is is interesting because we have all of the different forensic disciplines there working in the same laboratory system and we see each other in the hall and we see each other at lunch and we hang out with the analysts in the different sections. So we get exposed to all of the different forensic disciplines. And I started hanging out with the guys who were working in the computer forensics, which is what it was called at the time, the computer forensics section. And I thought that what they were doing was really interesting interesting because all of their cases were different. Every case that came in was a different type of case. It was a different type of device that they had to analyze. And that was really kind of interesting and intriguing to me. I kind of grew up at the very beginning of the computer phase. Uh, we had an old Apple IIe back in when I was a child, um, which I got to play around on
2: for a little context what year are we talking about early 80s
1: yeah and so i was you know playing video games on it and writing little programs on it and i kind of went away from computers when i went to college because i thought that i wanted to go on a different career path but it all sort of came back around on itself when i was working at fdle and i started hanging out with the people who were working in in computer forensics and just talking to them and learning about what they were doing And I learned enough just by hanging out with them uh, that when a position opened up, I was able to apply for it and get that position. And so instead of coming from a, IT or a technical computing background. I came from a forensic science background, so I had those kind of uh, real strong forensic science foundation. The ideas about chain of custody being very important, and uh, ideas about validation testing, and kind of those those sort of kind of core fundamental forensic science ideas were already built right into me before I stepped into this particular field, which was a fairly unique thing at the time.
2: So if I got this right, that's right around 2005 or somewhere just before that.
1: That sounds about right. Yeah, I I, I kind of weaved in and out a little bit. Uh, I started at FDLE in 2000 and I spent a couple of years there. And then I took a totally different career path and I went off and became a professional brewer for about four years. And then i had a kid and I needed to, something a little bit more stable, so I left the craft brew industry and I came back to work uh, at the Florida Department of Law Enforcement and uh, continued on from there, and, and that's, the rest is kind of history.
2: But it is interesting, as you say, to bring it back because even in early 2000, we're talking just 20 years ago, digital evidence and digital examination was emerging as a true profession. Uh, As you said, this is kind of uh, whoever was in the lab knows about computers or printers. Uh, Take a look at this device. Take a look at that computer. We recovered a computer and it's AOL, the Internet, all those devices started pairing applications. It really changed how this whole field evolved and developed, whereas now every crime has some type of digital evidence.
1: Absolutely, absolutely. Um, You know, when when this section was actually started at FDLE, it wasn't started by a lab professional. It was started by a special agent, an investigator, a sworn officer is the one who actually started that particular section because he had a case and he needed this evidence worked and there was no one around to do it. So he actually founded this particular section and then it got Folded into the laboratory so that there was there were more um, scientists that were doing the work as opposed to the investigators doing the work themselves.
2: And that's interesting. And so I think um, these devices that they as they developed um, and the cases you actually worked on is quite an array. Uh, so so many people think of mobile phones and your computer, but probably the last thing you now you see now is a is a computer, laptops and tablets, and even gaming devices are pretty common, right?
1: Absolutely, yeah. When, when I first started working in the section, almost all of our casework was the big giant boxy desktops that, that people had um, that were made by Dell and Gateway at the time, which was, but these, these were big giant boxes that we had to take apart and pull hard drives out of and analyze. And those hard drives at the time, I mean, the, the physical storage capacity of those hard drives was 100, 200 megabytes. Uh, nowadays, I mean, you get a standard laptop and it comes with at least a one terabyte hard drive, which is, you know, 1000 gigabytes, basically. It's, it's a huge amount of information that's that has grown over that time. In addition to the different types of devices. Yeah, you're absolutely right. When I first started even mobile phones were still something that we were just getting started as far as being able to look at and analyze and pull information off of By the time that I stopped working the laboratory. I think that mobile phones were probably 80% of my casework. I mean, that was the most popular device that we were asked to extract information off of but The variety of different devices that store information these days is enormous. Smart watches, gaming devices, um, all of your internet of things devices that are in your house, all of these are are devices that are storing information and and information that might be useful in an investigation.
2: Yes, so as things evolve, when you look at the field today, what are the challenges that you see? We talked about the number of devices examiners see, but it's also about the volume and the speed, right?
1: Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, the the volume itself is is one aspect. Absolutely. There's just more data. There is a ton of data out there for us to look at. Um, And new devices are coming out and those devices get updated. And the way that the information gets stored on those devices changes every time those updates come out. So we're constantly running to try to keep up with understanding how the data gets stored on there, how to get the data off of the device, and then how to make sense of what that data actually is. But there are lots of other challenges that are coming up as well. Um, I mentioned the IoT devices, the Internet of Things. Um, These are devices that could possibly have a great amount of information that might be very valuable to an investigator. So if you think about something like a smart thermostat, for instance, that you have in your house, this is a device that knows when you're there and when you're not there, because that's one of the pieces of information that it's actually tracking. Now, where that information is stored is not always on the device itself, but it might be on the company's server. And the company's server might be here in the United States, it might be in Ireland, it might be in Russia. And so getting access to that information can sometimes be a really big challenge when you don't necessarily have jurisdiction to where that information is stored. And I haven't even mentioned encryption.
2: Yeah, encryption is a big one because the demand by users to protect their privacy comes with costs. Criminals now have an environment where they are afforded more protection uh, with limited uh, intrusion in terms of their criminal behavior. It's harder for us to get access to.
1: Encryption is one of those things that's been around forever. I mean, there there have been these encryption algorithms that have been out there and available for people to use for you know a long time, for 20 years at least. But now they're starting to be integrated into the operating system or into the device itself, and they're turned on by default. Encryption, for instance, in the Android operating system has been there for a long, long time, but it wasn't turned on by default. The user had to go in and take extra steps to actually turn that on. Nowadays, you go buy a brand new Android phone, it's going to come out of the box, already encrypted, which just makes our job as forensics people trying to get that information off that much more difficult.
2: So you have this encryption, you have the volume, the increase in speed, the transfer of uh, many, many terabytes of data, the number of devices uh, not only available, but the number of devices connected in the cloud, the internet of things. So this really does demand a lot from the digital examiner, which kind of segues in today's discussion, how you go about training and educating today's examiner.
1: One of the challenges, of course, is that there is this huge volume, and and digital forensics as a discipline actually gets used in a lot of different ways in a lot of different places, depending on what it is that you're actually doing. If you're working for a law enforcement agency, you kind of have one set of skills that you you need to focus on. If you're working for a corporate company, where you're doing things like incident response, that is, you're uh, responding to uh, intrusions into your network, like the hackers are breaking in, and you have to go in and try to stop them and figure out what's going on, that's a slightly different skill set. Um, or if you're working you know, in cybersecurity, for instance, that's a slightly different skill set. So the, the whole field of digital forensics is very broad, and it's very wide. And when you first start sort of down the path of learning about digital forensics, you don't really know where you're going to end up as far as that Wide breadth of possibilities is. And so one of the things that often happens is the training programs that are out there are very narrow and they're very specific. So, for instance, in the laboratory that I worked in, we had a specific set of tools that we would use, and we couldn't use every tool that was out there because Forensic tools are very expensive, and there are lots of them. And there's no standardization about you have to use this tool, or you have to use this tool. There are lots of possibilities. So as a laboratory system, you pick a set of tools, and you train on those specific tools. But what happens when you leave that job or you go somewhere else? Well, now you've got a whole new set of tools that you have to learn. And so one of the things that was kind of lacking in a lot of the digital forensics training programs out there was a really good solid foundation uh, that was built on science and that was built on sort of developing the thinking like a forensic scientist and plugging all of the digital stuff on top of that. A funny story, a long time ago um, I was actually talking with a a colleague of mine. He was a a sworn law enforcement officer and he was actually, he was one of the, the best as far as digital forensics goes in the state of Florida at the time. And I remember I was having a discussion with him at a conference one time and he was, we were arguing about whether or not digital forensics was a science or not. And this is a, a, an old argument. People have had this argument for as long as I can remember. Um, people who are scientists like to say, yes, it's a science, absolutely. People who are not scientists like to say, no, 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 this is a craft. This is an art form. There's no real scientific basis to this. And, and I, I, I call bogus on that. I mean, I really think that this field needs to be built on the foundation of good science. Otherwise, everything kind of falls apart in the end.
2: Absolutely. And one of the challenges, like you said, with this field is that any day you will get a different device, a new app, something very different. So it's really about problem solving, but utilizing a set of procedures and standardized tools that help you make a determination. So it's about the documentation and the approach to the project, uh, to the problem, even though it's a new problem. Um, There are critical scientific elements in all investigations that you try to adhere to, standard operating procedures.
1: Absolutely. Yeah, at least that's the way it should be.
2: So tell us a little bit about that, FIU's program, and about how your digital forensic education fits into the larger forensic program.
1: Sure, absolutely. So um, I I joined FIU almost two years ago now, and I left Florida Department of Law Enforcement and joined uh, FIU. Um, FIU is uh, currently, I think it's the fifth largest public university in the United States. It has something over 50,000 students in it, uh, hundreds and hundreds of different majors. It's a big major university. And it's based out, of course, down in Miami. One of the the unique programs that FIU has is what's called the Global Forensic and Justice Center. And the Global Forensics and Justice Center is actually a group of four different institutes that sort of focus on forensic research, uh, forensic training, uh, justice policy, international policy. And we all kind of work together as far as anything that has to do with forensics and justice. One of those entities is the National Forensic Science Technology Center, which is where I work. The National Forensic Science Technology Center or NFSTC focuses really on the training and testing of forensic tools and teaching military and law enforcement forensic tools and techniques across a wide variety of forensic disciplines. So we have people who specialize in crime scene and we have people who specialize in DNA and chemistry and all of the different disciplines that are out there. And then we have a group of us that focus on digital forensics. Two and a half, three years ago, uh, NFSTC was acquired by FIU and became part of this Global Forensic Justice Center. And we um, have been integrating sort of what we do, the training with FIU and what they do as a university. And that was what I was actually brought in to do was to sort of help bridge that gap between the digital forensics training that we were providing to our primarily military customers and take Mm -hmm. that information and develop a way to teach it in the university system. So my task was to come in and and build a a forensic program that was going to consist of four different courses, uh, an introduction to digital forensics, a network forensics course, a mobile device forensics course, and an image and video enhancement and forensics course. And these four courses were going to initially be taught at the undergraduate level. So these would be courses that would then be plugged in to the undergraduate level in the computing and engineering school. That's where we live. The rest of the forensic programs at FIU primarily live, of course, in the Criminology Department or the International Studies Department. And we're kind of the first ones to be in this engineering department. So it's it's very exciting for us to to be building this. The very first course, the Introduction to Digital Forensics course, it's been up and running now for several semesters. It's very successful, students love it, and it's taught completely online. Um, So all of these courses are being developed to be taught completely online, partially because FIU is, of course, located in Miami. NFSTC is located in Largo, Florida, which is actually in the Tampa Bay region, and I live up in Tallahassee, Florida. And Florida is a really big state, so that's really far away. So all of my courses that I teach are actually taught online. So that's kind of where we're going. And then once we get the undergraduate courses uh, up and running and and running smoothly, we're going to yank them out of the university system. And we're going to also offer them as a professional development series. So they'll still be affiliated with FIU, but they'll be available to people who are not students at FIU.
2: So in terms of the undergraduate programs, what types of students are jumping in? and taking your intro to digital forensic class? Are they criminal justice, computer science, engineering?
1: Right now, they're almost all engineering students. And one of the things that I'm trying to do is I'm trying to get it to branch out a little bit more and to offer it to computer science people, criminology people, people in the law school. I mean, FIU is is a very large institution. We've got students Mm -hmm. who are studying all different kinds of things. And right now, uh, it, it's really focused on the engineering students. And I'll be honest with you, I, I've got a lot of students right now. I've got almost more than I can handle. Um, so while I'm, while I'm trying to branch out and bring more people in under the tent, right now, I've got all the work that I can handle for sure.
2: And so in the intro course, what are uh, the students going to get? You know, talk about some of the content of that coursework.
1: Absolutely. So I, I start off the course really with an introduction to forensic science. One of my really uh, big goals with this course and with these series is to develop people who have what I like to refer to as the forensic mindset. You know, you can teach somebody how to use a tool all day long, but if you don't develop people having the correct mindset when it comes to doing forensic science, but they're they're gonna end up, you know, as people who just know how to push buttons on tools and not how to actually do the work and make those adaptations that the new device that comes in next month is gonna require. So I like to really start off with an introduction to forensic science. And we talk about integrity. And we talk about chain of custody. And we talk about being curious. And we talk about how important it is to document, 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 write down everything. And we talk about sort of the role of the forensic scientist in the justice system. Because I mean, that's my background and that's where I come from. So we talk about being an expert witness and testifying in court and what that means and what that doesn't mean and you know what is bias and how do you combat bias and and all of those kinds of things that, that a lot of digital forensics people were never actually exposed to. So we really start out with that good solid scientific forensic foundation. And then we slowly start building on top of that about, okay, now how does digital fit into this? What types of cases uh, could digital evidence be useful in? And the answer is every case. Everybody carries a cell phone with them. Everybody sends emails. Every single possible case out there could have an element of digital forensics required. And then we go into sort of the foundation. How do you make a forensic image? What is a forensic image? Why is that an important step? And, and sort of build on top of that and keep building on top of that until they have a really good, solid foundation that's not specific to any one tool or any one set of policies and procedures, but so that they can then take that information and continue on and learn about more specific stuff later on.
2: Your real world examples, you set them up like, so you, you just uh, arrested me for child pornography And you have a laptop and my mobile phone. So what would a student learn to do? What types of uh, tools, examinations would they perform on those uh, mobile phones and, say, the laptop?
1: So my course, while while it's meant to be foundational, it's also meant to be comprehensive. So the idea here is that they could take that laptop and they could remove the hard drive from that laptop and create a forensic image, because that's the very first step of of a digital uh, examination is creating a forensic image, which is an exact duplicate of every single one and zero in a forensically sound manner, so you're not changing anything on the original hard drive. And then to do the examination on that forensic image. So they'll know what a forensic image is, They'll know some freeware, basic tools that you can use to create that forensic image. And then they'll know how to go about doing the examination. What are some of the artifacts that you're looking for? How do you examine internet history? What does internet history mean? what's the difference between a forensic artifact that was created by a user activity and a forensic artifact that was created by the system? Because those are two different types of artifacts that tell you two different things. And so that's kind of what they'll be able to do. They'll be able to look at that internet history, find files of value. They'll be able to carve for deleted files. So they'll understand what happens in the file system when you delete a file. So they'll be able to go back and recover those deleted files. So I'm trying to really give them the foundational information and teach them how to do it the hard way, which is using the freeware tools, using the manual processes to process that information so that later on when they're introduced to the full-fledged Digital forensic tools that do all that stuff for you, they'll know what the tool is doing under the hood because they've done it themselves. And so that's kind of what I'm trying to do with that one. With cell phones, it's going to be very similar. It's going to be they're going to know what the major cell phone forensic tools out there are, how to isolate that phone from the network so that no more incoming information comes, no more. New text messages come in or a remote kill command that will wipe the phone. So you got to make sure you isolate it from the network. And then how do you extract the information off of it and go through that information and what that information
2: means? And so you talk a little bit about that, the mechanics of those things. But you did touch on all the other players, right? You have the prosecutor, law enforcement. And talk a little bit about those relationships and how they're positive, but they also... Uh, present uh, a lot of difficulties, right? Because you're, you're trying to connect all these pieces of evidence and, and players, and you know it's easy to get sucked into a potential bias.
1: Uh, one of the things that we spend a lot of time on um, in the very beginning of the very fundamental class, is we spend a lot of time talking about the forensic scientist role and what is their role in the investigation. And we really focus on integrity and we focus on how do you do an unbiased examination and how do you talk to investigators and prosecutors and judges in a way that you, they understand that your job as a forensic scientist is not to find somebody innocent or guilty your job is really just to do an unbiased examination of the evidence that's here, provide that information in a readable format, and testify in court as needed as to what your results actually mean. And so we spend a lot of time talking about undue pressure that comes sometimes from prosecutors or pressure that comes from investigators. I mean, I I often tell the story about how often somebody would bring me a laptop and say, this guy's a real scumbag, you gotta find something on this. And I just kind of looked at them and shrugged and I said, well, it's either there or it's not. And that's all I can tell you is if the data is there or not. One of the really interesting things about digital forensics and sort of our unique role in the entire process of the investigation and the prosecution and everything else, all of the other forensic disciplines out there are usually really good at answering, you know, the who, what, when, where, questions. You know, uh, DNA and fingerprints are great at telling you who was there. You know, they can, they are fantastic at telling you who was the individual that was at that location. You know, things like firearms and crime scene, you know, they're good at at analyzing individual items and telling you what was there. The only really discipline that can sort of get into the why is digital evidence. When you start looking at people's communications when you start looking at the things that they were searching google for that really can kind of tell you about somebody's mindset and what they were thinking and what they were planning that the other forensic disciplines really can't give you so it's a really unique set of information that we can provide to the investigation that some of the other disciplines can't
2: yeah that's a really good point uh, on premeditation and intent and pulling that all together and uh, really interesting. So when you, when you talk about that, right, all these different pieces of evidence, how do you coordinate your coursework and the education um, with the standards that are being developed in the field, for instance, with the working group and digital evidence and uh, NIST and other groups?
1: A lot of my reading material that I make the students read are the the documents from SWIG DE, the best practices documents that SWIG DE puts out. When I worked at FDLE, we were an accredited laboratory. And so we actually had um, one of my coworkers who was on the SWIG DE panels often. And I still am in touch with them and I still reach out to them and I still get phone calls and go out to lunch. Well, I did go out to lunch as often as I, as I could because I, I still want to know about As our discipline is one of the ones that changes so rapidly and so much, I wanna make sure that I'm still plugged into that to see what new standards are they coming out with? What is SWIGDE saying now or what's coming down the pipe? Because I know the people that are on the panel, sometimes I can get information ahead of time before things are actually published on the website. But all of the procedures that I teach them are based on those best practices that are currently published by SWIGDE.
2: Excellent. So, I mean, that sets up, um, you know, where do you see your program developing? Where would you like it to go over the next, uh, you know, I would imagine a couple of years? So you got a full house now, right?
1: <laughs> I do. I do have a full house. Um, we're looking to uh, bring some more people in to get me some help teaching uh, these courses. I do have a colleague who currently works in the engineering department who has, in the past, he's taught the malware classes. And he's actually developing and teaching the network forensics class. So I do, I do have some people that are helping me out with this. But what I'd really like to see is I'd like to see this, this sort of branch out into and bring in people from different schools there at the university, at FIU. We've got this wealth of, of information and, and resources there. We've got a criminology department. We've got a law school. We've got a computer science school. And I'd really like to be able to bring partners in from all of those different schools and really build this up as its own sort of standalone digital forensics program that can then, of course, be integrated, have plugins to all of our other forensic programs, but I really think that there's enough demand and there's enough material here to have our own kind of standalone program there at FIU. You know, an undergraduate degree in digital forensics, a master's degree in digital forensics, those are all things that are things that we're shooting for. We're not there yet, but we're shooting for those kinds of things down the road, for sure.
2: Along with the education platform, what about a research platform? So it seems like it's a really extremely ripe area for a lot of investigation and examination in terms of best practices and uh, innovation.
1: It absolutely is. You know, the, the, the Global Forensic and Justice Center already has two different institutes inside of it that really kind of focus on research already. What they don't have yet is a very strong digital forensics portion to them. So one of the things that I'm definitely hoping that we can do is we can get plugged in to those institutes and really start introducing them and implementing a lot of the digital forensics policies and processes and challenges, quite honestly. I'd like to be able to sort of throw them down and say, look, these are our challenges. Go be smart and come up with some great, awesome policies and procedures that we can implement to these. And they've actually already started. There is a a group of people that are actually at FIU. They're working on a way of collecting and aggregating information from IoT devices. Uh, FIU actually has an undergraduate degree in the Internet of Things. And so one of the things that they're really working on is they produce so much data that uh, the human brain just can't even comprehend. It can't even look at that data and make sense of it. So they're using things like machine learning and artificial intelligence Mm -hmm. to look at these data streams to catalog them. And then they're using blockchain, right? There's another buzzword. that They're using blockchain to actually categorize all of this information and make it available to investigators should they need to go back and get it. So one of the things they're working on right now are things like doorbell cams that are storing information. Uh, But the problem is, of course, how do you store it and how do you get access to it? And how do you validate that that data you're pulling off of the server is the actual data hasn't been manipulated, hasn't been changed. So they're working on a lot of these very high level research projects to come up with ways to categorize and keep track of all of that data so that the investigators can then go in and say, I need this information. It comes down, it's validated because of all of the blockchain stuff. And it's really interesting technology that I know about this you know tiny bit of that's Really interesting and really cool stuff that
2: they're working on. As we wrap up, I mean, you just really hit on some really interesting emerging trends with with all these exciting uh, things around the Internet of things, the globalization of the digital world, right? Um, Not even knowing where things are stored. You know, you go from a, a, a big fat computer sitting on your desk, you know, 40 years ago. And What went in stayed there uh, to the internet and to this massive infrastructure now that we have globally. uh, It really creates a a dynamic and exciting place for uh, digital examiners.
1: It certainly does. It's also a dynamic and exciting place for policymakers. Um, When you start to think about how global all of this information is, well, now we have to be able to work with Uh, law enforcement agencies or government agencies around the world, and so we have to come up with frameworks of how does an investigator in a small town in Florida get information from a server that's located in Ireland? What is the process and what is the policy to make that happen? And right now those frameworks are in the very, very early stages and they're not at all robust.
2: Well, great. I'd like to thank our guest today, Mr. Matt Verdell, for sitting down with Just Science to discuss the education, opportunities, in digital forensics. Thank you. Thank you. If you enjoyed today's conversation, be sure to like and follow Just Science on your podcast platform of choice. For more information on today's topic, resources, in forensic field, visit forensiccoe.org. I'm Mike Plany, and this has been another episode of Just Science.
0: In the next episode, Just Science interviews Barbara Gutman about a NIST foundational study for digital evidence examiners. Opinions or points of views expressed in this podcast represent a consensus of the authors and do not necessarily represent the official position or policies of its funding.